Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Most universities do not have a murder mystery at their very foundation, but Stanford sure does. The facts are clear. Jane Stanford was murdered on a trip to Hawaii, probably by one of her closest associates. Then the university that bears her name covered it up. According to historian Richard White, we should not be surprised. Gilded Age San Francisco was violent and corrupt entangled with the infrastructure and money of the railroad barons whose mansions still sit atop our highest hills. Then as now, wealth warps, and the Stanford fortune sucked so many into its swirling vortex. Come with us as we unravel the murder mystery told in White's new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a nice story about the founding of Stanford that you may have heard. The railroad baron, Leland Stanford, and his wife, Jane Stanford, had a son, Leland Jr. On a trip to Europe, Leland Jr. died of typhoid. Bereft, the Stanfords committed their vast fortune to an institution of higher learning that would be a monument to their last child. After Leland Sr.'s death, Jane Stanford nobly carried this task through, building the university that now rivals any on earth, And she died in Hawaii, the story goes, under unresolved circumstances unrelated to the university. It's a version of the founding myth you might hear from tour guides as you amble the palm-treed grounds of the campus in Palo Alto. And for historian Richard White, who taught at the university for decades, it proves a rich target for his style of rigorous, sharp-tongued historical analysis. For all was certainly not as it was meant to seem. As he writes, leading her procession to the grave were people suspected of her murder, people who covered it up, and those she despised and wished to fire. A man she loathed awaited to deliver the last words. Welcome to the show, Richard White. Thanks, Alexis. So I want to go back to the creation of this fortune that eventually got left to to Stanford University, at least in, in some measure. You've taken on building of the railroads in previous books, and you've come to some pretty sharp conclusions. So talk to me about who Leland Stanford Sr. was and how he made his money. Uh, Leland Stanford Sr. made his money through the Central Pacific Railroad and mostly through the Southern Pacific Railroad. He was one of four associates and um, probably the dimmest of them. The smartest was Collis P. Huntington. And Huntington was the one who steered the railroad to um, not so much prosperity for the railroad as prosperity for the people who ran it. Uh, They engaged in stock manipulation. They engaged in what we would regard as fraud. Um, They borrowed money from the government and uh, tried not to pay it back. They would today probably be identified as kleptocrats. Um, And it's not a term... For the Gilded Age, but it's it's an appropriate enough term. Yeah. 
So they were also strangely tied up, the big four, right? Like they kind of couldn't pull their money out without the other people taking control of the company. Can you tell us how that sort of played into how the Stanfords thought about their money? What what the associates did is they pooled their money, um, that they would not sell stock without the agreement of others. And they also had a series of subsidiary companies, such as the um, Pacific Improvement Company, which was called the Personal Interest Company by insiders, in which they'd funnel money out of the railroads, basically defrauding stockholders, putting it into their own pockets. But the way the railroad was um, constructed or the companies were constructed was even as they grew older and came to hate each other, they were stuck with each other. They could not withdraw the money without the consent of others. And so as they became more and more dysfunctional, they more and more despised each other, they could not separate. And that's what keeps Stanford going. The Stanford Endowment is tied up in the Southern Pacific Railroad, but the Southern Pacific Railroad is not solely under the control of Jane Stanford. So what relationship did these railroad magnets have towards the different kinds of laborers that they employed, the Chinese laborers that were there as well as other people who were, who were working on, on these projects? Uh, Stanford, when he was governor of California, was an exclusionist. Um, he was racist, and he wanted to ban further Chinese immigration. He thought Chinese immigrants were unassimilable um, and that they were a threat to um, white men in California. He changed his opinion on Chinese workers as time went on because they both built his railroad and the the Central Pacific couldn't have been built without them, and because he employed them in his household staff. The basic racism probably didn't disappear, but he certainly came to believe in the utility of um, of the Chinese. At the same time, he had... All of them had hostile relations with labor in general, particularly with organized labor, which was going to be more and more Irish and German. Jane Stanford, by the 1890s, 1900s, despises um, organized labor. She despises socialists. She sees them as a threat to her husband's legacy. She sees them as a threat to her own fortune. (laughs) Tell us more about Jane Stanford, right? She had, I guess, what we would call, you know, in in common times, kind of cultish religious beliefs, yeah? Yeah, what the turning point for Jane Stanford is the death of her son, Leland Stanford Jr., in 1884. And it's hard not to be sympathetic to her. Um, grief is an overpowering emotion. This was an only child, conceived when she was 39, um, and the loss was terrible. Uh, it takes her years to recover from it. But she also becomes attracted to spiritualism. Spiritualism is basically a belief that you could communicate with the dead. And until the end of her life, she thought she was in communication with her dead son and then eventually her dead husband. She's a spiritualist at a time where spiritualism is both common but also mistrusted and despised. It is not part of Orthodox Christianity. She tries to um, cloak her spiritualism in Orthodox Christianity. And if you go through the Stanford Memorial Church today, which has been rebuilt, it still has signs of Jane Stanford's spiritualism. There are going to be the female angels, there's the sayings on the wall, that as a spiritualist, she was hiding in plain sight. She's not alone. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant and his wife Julia were spiritualists. Queen Victoria was a spiritualist. But at the same time, it is not a conventional belief in the late 19th, early 20th century. Mm. Tell us a little bit, too, about the sort of Gilded Age San Francisco and Bay Area that they are are moving in. I mean, you have an amazing passage in the book about how 
one newspaper editor had to hire Wyatt Earp, like that Wyatt Earp, to watch over him because there was so much violence sort of in between the different uh, institutions of the city. Yeah, my, my my favorite part of the Wyatt Earp story is they listed him on the payroll as a library attaché. <laughs> um, but what Wyatt Earp is there is because it was common to threaten newspapers. Newspapers were at war with each other, um, and they were also very often involved in politics. Uh, they all took s- subsidies. They got payoffs from politicians. And since one newspaper would back some politicians and not other politicians, um, there was going to be the controversy there. But they also sold newspapers by exposing scandals. And San Francisco was incredibly corrupt. Gamblers were paying off police. Police were paying off politicians. The uh, so-called French restaurants, which were a, a front for prostitution, it went on and on and on in 19th century San Francisco. So anytime you crossed one of these interests, and you, virtually if you were publishing a paper, you had to cross some of these interests, um, you were going to be under a threat of violence. People took out a contract on Fremont Older, who was one of the leading newspaper editors in, in San Francisco. He was later kidnapped and held down where I lived, near Redwood City for a while. He, he eventually escaped. Um, these, kinds of, these kinds of things were quite common. And the politics were rough. Leland Stanford played, and the Southern Pacific played a great role in corrupting both newspapers and politicians. And the interesting thing about the investigation of his wife's death is that the corruption he sowed comes back to affect the investigation of Jane Stanford's murder. Mm. We're going to get to that. But first, I want to know how they decided to put their money into the university and also how they actually did it. Like there were problems with this bequest. There were incredible problems with this bequest. Um, What they do is they decide that they're going to make the university a memorial to their um, dead child. Leland, there's a bunch of stories, but the one I believe is true is that Leland Stanford was sitting up as his son was dying um, in, in Florence And as he fell asleep, he had a dream that Leland had come to him and said, you have to use your fortune for the benefit of um, others, youth of California. Um, When he woke up, Leland Jr. was dead. They do found a university. I mean, that part of the story is true. But the way they found the university is very different from the Stanford story. They do not donate their fortune to the university. The original endowment of the university is going to be three ranches, um, one of which has grapevines, all of which are dying of phylloxera. Um, another one is a grain farm whose um, yields are declining. And the other one is the Stanford Horse Farm, Palo Alto campus today, which is losing about $7,000 a year. As one of the trustees will complain, the endowment brought them nothing but taxes. (laughs) He will also take money out of the Pacific Improvement Company. He will borrow it. He gives $1.5 million to start the construction of the university, but it's a loan. And what the people, the trustees don't know (laughs) is that the Pacific Improvement Company in the Depression of the 1890s is um, going into debt and those $28 million, $7 million, which is going to be attributed to, to Stanford. So Stanford doesn't so much get an endowment as a legacy of borrowing and debt. When Leland Sr. dies, um, he leaves his money not to the university, he leaves it to Jane, so that the money is going to be totally dependent on Jane Stanford. But this the story gets complicated, that um, Jane Stanford herself finds out that because Leland Jr. and the other, Leland Sr. and the other associates have not repaid their loan, that um, the federal government is coming after them for the loan, and they get tied up in the Supreme Court, tying up her entire fortune. Meanwhile, the lawyers figure out that the whole 
legal structure of Stanford University utterly ignores California laws about trusts, about um, trustees, about the way that the various um, documents have to agree with each other, and that for legal purposes, there is no Stanford University. It's only going to be saved by an amendment to the California Constitution. What she inherits is a real mess. And the person tasked with sort of kind of managing this unruly beast is David Starr Jordan, noted eugenicist and ichthyologist, right? Right. Jordan Jordan becomes president. He's their fourth choice, and he's the youngest college president at the time. And he has no idea what he's getting into. He thinks he's getting an endowment of $30 million. What he realizes is he's in a university in great debt that might shut its doors if the government's suit succeeds. He is given almost total control over the academic part of the university. He has no control over the financial part of the university. Jane Stanford holds the purse strings, and that means that Jane Stanford can control virtually everything that David Starr Jordan does. He cannot afford to cross her. When she puts her foot down, David Starr Jordan has no choice but to obey, um, and it will lead to great conflicts by the early 20th century. We're talking with two-time Pulitzer finalist historian Richard White about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. And it, in fact, does contain all of those things. What questions do you have about Stanford's early years for historian Richard White? And just hearing stories about greed, corruption, and ill motives of these Gilded Age titans and philanthropists change the way you think about the institutions that they founded. You can give us a call now. Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or the emails forum at kqed.org. Stay tuned for more after the break about who killed Jane Stanford. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with one of my favorite historians, Richard White, about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. Before the break, we had gotten to the point where Jane Stanford and David Starr Jordan were involved in an incredibly complex uh, set of maneuvers about who controlled the university and how it worked. We have all these meridians of power and influence which are trying to direct the mass 
of Jane Stanford's wealth to one place or another. And then she just so happens to be poisoned. Um, can you set up for us kind of the, the first poisoning, that is to say, um, and how the institutions around Jane Stanford reacted to the fact that, that she was poisoned in her own home? In, in January of 1905, Stan, Jane Stanford prepares to go to bed. She um, is in a giant mansion, which is largely empty except for her servants and her private secretary, Bertha Burner. Um, she goes to take Poland Spring bottled water, which still exists, and notice there's a bitter taste. And she calls in her maid, Elizabeth Richmond, who notices that um, there is things floating in the water. And, and Jane Stanford has already begun to spit out the water and begin to gag and throw up. Elizabeth Richmond goes down to get her something, some salt and warm water to, to, to throw up and get the poison out and calls Bertha Burner, who's upstairs, to come down. Um, Jane Stanford, it turns out, as the bottle will be sent out for analysis, there is rat poison, which contains strychnine in the bottled water. Somebody had come in and put rat poison in the Poland spring water, and the first mystery is going to be who put the rat poison in the water. The suspects tend to be Bertha Burner, um, the servants, and people connected with the servants. And what they'll do is when they get the analysis that in fact was strychnine back from the druggist, which takes almost a week, they will call in private detectives. They'll call in the Harry Morse Detective Agency. But the Harry Morse Detective Agency is not hired to solve the crime, or not only to solve the crime. They're hired to keep the crime quiet. What the Stanford family, like most rich families in San Francisco, do not want is a scandal. And the police will not be notified. They will eventually find out about it through the papers three weeks later. It's so interesting. Why did these incredibly wealthy families fear scandal? Like, what, what did they actually stand to lose when that happened? One of the things you can do, which is interesting because I, I began to do it, is go through the suits over estates in early 19th century San Francisco, which very often would lead with the bribing of Supreme Court judges, with um, attempted murder there. There is going to be a great deal of controversy over these fortunes. And one of the things they're afraid of is that they will uncover that there are scandals within the family, that the family might be involved. They also do not want, in the Stanford's case, any examination of the fortune and what's being done with it and who has access to it. And what they mostly don't want is any sort of, this is a family born in scandal. The last thing you want when you're already seen as a plutocrat, um, denounced as a corruptionist, is even more scandals about who might want to murder you and why. They want to settle this internally. If they figure out that it's safe to go after somebody, they will. Otherwise, they will just smooth it over. And that is essentially what they do. I mean, one of the most remarkable findings of your book is this does just kind of go away. The fact that one of the richest people uh, on earth at the time was poisoned and it's never the police don't solve it. Nothing happens, right? Right. They, what happens is the detectives eventually it leaks out. They're trying to keep it totally quiet, but they've accused people and some of the people who are accused go to the papers. So the whole thing explodes in the newspapers. And once it exploded in the newspapers, they have to go back to the um, detectives. The detectives, the private detectives, Jules Collenden. It takes him a while to get his act together, but he says, oh, it was all just a quarrel between the servants. The poison was put in the bottle after Jane Stanford drank it. There was never any real attempt at poisoning. It was just servants trying to discredit each other. And they say this even though they have a chemical report saying there's poison in the, um, in the bottle that the 
Bertha Berner and Elizabeth Richmond had seen the poison floating in the bottle and that the bottle had been taken almost immediately down to the, um, to the chemist. So they're, they're totally lying about what they know. Um, but the idea is to hush up the scandal. And as you say, they, they succeed because Jane Stanford seems to be alive. And while she will admit privately to all kinds of people that, in fact, she had been poisoned, she will not say anything publicly. Hmm. What a kind of evidentiary basis could you have in order to sort of make conclusions about what was happening at this time, right? I mean, were there archival records that actually shed light on what you needed? Or did you have to make sense of kind of conflicting newspaper accounts? Like, what, what remained from this time? One of the interesting things is, is how much evidence was destroyed. Um, there's things that you know exist, um, autopsy reports, uh, investigations supposedly by the detectives. Those things have, have disappeared. But what remains is the sort of echoes of those things. The, the detectives' reports might have disappeared, but the detectives submitted things to the newspapers so that you get them in newspaper reports. Um, that what you'll find is you can destroy some records, you can destroy some letters, but the responses to those letters remain. So what I had to do was piece together accounts from newspapers, from David Starr Jordan's papers, because say what you will about David Starr Jordan, he kept most of his papers. <laughs> um, and those things began to give me the links to to begin to reconstruct the mystery. But it it was hard. It was it was not easy research at all. It was it turned out to be quite demanding. Yeah. And you know, one of the people that comes up again and again is Jane Stanford's private secretary, Bertha Berner. And she also wrote a memoir, right? One of these kind of unreliable uh, narrators in the story, like all like everyone in the story actually. Can you talk a little bit about what the relationship between, like when we hear private secretary, I'm not sure that most of our listeners would understand the kind of relationship that Bertha Berner and Jane Stanford might have had. How did it work? Yeah. Bertha Berner is a private secretary in two senses. There's one sense is when we talked about private secretaries in the 19th or early 20th century, it's an executive position. Bertha Berner had a great deal to do with managing Jane Stanford's affairs, her finances, other kinds of things. But the other thing is was a personal relationship. The Bertha Berner was hired by Jane Stanford when she was 18, and she met Jane Stanford at the funeral for her son. The only account we have of these things very often comes from Bertha Berner, but they became quite close. And in Bertha Berner, Berner's account and in the university account, what Bertha Berner and Jane did is have a friendly relationship for over 20 years. They were close friends. She was her confidant and that she was devastated by Jane Stanford's death. One of the things I found is they had a very rocky relationship. Jane Stanford tried to control Bertha Berner's um, romantic life, her sexual life. Bertha, she tried to make sure that Bertha Berner devoted most of her attention to her, not to her sick mother. Um, and she tried to manipulate Bertha Berner through money. And that very often in their relationship, they fracture. Years will go by without Bertha Berner working for Jane Stanford, but she always comes back. And that one of the interesting things here was showing that the, that, that relationship was not as all as Bertha Berner portrayed it, portrayed it in her memoir, nor is it how the university usually portrays it. It was really a very rocky relationship between two very strong-willed women. Mm. There were other servants who came under suspicion, um, including one named Ah Wing, who was a Chinese servant that worked in, in Jane Stanford's house. How, what, what was his relationship to the Stanfords? 
Ah Wing was the longest serving of Jane Stanford's Chinese servants, and he had been quite loyal to the Stanfords. And it's actually his loyalty that causes a rift between him and the Stanfords. Um, one of Jane's <coughs> brothers, um, Harry Lathrop, had been dying of cirrhosis of the liver and had come to live with Jane in the mansion on Knob Hill. Ah Wing takes care of him as he dies, and it's a painful death. And he promises Ah Wing, in gratitude for the care he gave him, that he would leave him money in his will. Um, being a Lathrop, he does not leave him money in his will. He leaves the money to Jane. And Ah Wing is furious. He says he's quitting. He's going back to China. And Jane Stanford promises him, well, I will give you $1,000 now, and I will leave you more in my will. But he still goes back to China to see his family and then comes back in, has a terrible time coming back into the country. And he is warned by the Lathrops, he's rehired, that this is the last time they're going to help him back in. He has to stay. Um, he has to stay with Jane Stanford. They will, he cannot expect any further help if he leaves to go back to China. So he is both around because he is owed money, Jane Stanford has promised him, and because he really can't leave if he ever intends to come back into the United States. I mean, this kind of fortune ends up just making everyone rotate around it, right? Because there are other people, in particular Jane Stanford's relatives, who would like to get their hands on the fortune that was slated to go to Stanford University, right? That's right. Um, Leland Stanford, when he dies, leaves the money to Jane, and he leaves money to the Stanford relatives. The Lathrop relatives don't get much. The Lathrop relatives are waiting for Jane to die so that they can get their share. But that some of them have already alienated Jane because some of the bequests that Leland Stanford did give them, Jane doesn't want to pay because she doesn't have the money because she's tied up in the suit. And she asks them to take land instead, and they refuse. So she gets furious. So she disinherits part of her Lathrop relatives who are going to be very interested in overturning her own will so she can get they can get that money back. But her brother, Charles Lathrop, is is loyal to her, and he actually helps keep the university open, but he is clearly interested in getting a large inheritance from his sister, Jane. Um, and meanwhile, what he does is he's making loans from his own fortune and from his anticipated fortune to people who will be lawyers and associates of Jane Stanford. So they have a great deal of interest in making sure that the money doesn't go to the university, but it goes to Charles Lathrop, who they have borrowed money from and are doing favors for. Mm. And the person kind of playing defense against these people on behalf of Stanford University is a guy that... I would say you come to have some grudging respect for a guy named George Crothers. Yeah, George Crothers' name is still all over the Stanford campus, and nobody knows who he was. He was a, he was a trustee. Um, and what Crothers does is again these kind of these stories, which seem too strange to be true, but they are they are true. George Crothers was an undergraduate at Stanford who looks a lot like Leland Jr. And though the word is anachronistic, Jane Stanford stalks him as an undergraduate. Um, she gets in her carriage and follows him around campus, which is both creepy and touching. Um, <laughs> and what, what she eventually does is when he becomes a lawyer, she hires him to work for at the university. He will never actually become her personal lawyer because he doesn't want to work for her because she controls everybody who works for her, but he works for the university um, and helps her renegotiate her trust. What Crothers realizes is the founding documents of Stanford University are hopeless. They are a mess. He's the one who will engineer the amendment to the California Constitution to make California legal. 
He also realizes that Jane Stanford's control over her money will make it that the university cannot depend on any money, so he keeps trying to edge her towards making a firm commitment remodeling the trust so that Stanford will have a steady income and will be assured of money when she dies. I won't go into all the problems with that, but there are a whole series of technical problems that he tries to finesse all the time trying to make it seem that he has nothing to do with it because he knows he will be accused of having a personal interest in this and he will be a means for attacking the trusts when they're over. So Crothers knows where all the bodies are buried until the very end. He doesn't really believe that he's been able to do it. He will keep trying, but he knows how vulnerable the money left to Stanford is to legal challenge. I mean, it's really uh, this entire story is all about sort of the contingency of Stanford University's existence, uh, which is fascinating. We're talking with two time Pulitzer finalist historian Richard White about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits. And the birth of a university. And I would also say the, the birth of the Bay Area as we know it, with Stanford as just a, a pole of, uh, of a university pulling in a certain type of person to the South Bay. So we need to talk about the, the crucial moment in this story, which is Jane Stanford's actual murder. She's gone to Hawaii, perhaps to get away from her previous poisoner. She ends up in a Hawaii hotel. And what happens? Yeah, she... The night she leaves from San Francisco, um, she stops and sees George Crothers, and she also sends him a letter. And she says flat out um, that somebody has been trying to kill her, as Crothers knows, and that she's going to Hawaii because she doesn't feel safe in San Francisco. She goes with Bertha Burner and another maid. Um, she goes to Hawaii, and she's in Hawaii, and she's on her way to Japan. This is just the first stop. Bertha Burner does not want to go, but Jane Stanford coerces her to go. Her own mother is sick, and she feels her mother needs her care. They stay in Hawaii for a week or two, and then coming back from a day trip to the Pali outside of Honolulu, Jane Stanford will ask Bertha Burner to give her some bicarbonate of soda and some cascara tablets, which were a, a stomach aid in the early 20th century before she goes to bed. She doesn't take it immediately, and that Bertha Burner measures out the um, bicarbonate of soda, leaves the tablet there. They, she and the other maid go to bed, um, and in the middle of the night, they hear Jane Stanford screaming, wakes up people, she wakes up the guy next door, and she says that she's been poisoned again. They bring down a doctor. The doctor comes in. Jane Stanford tells her this is she's been poisoned in, in San Francisco, and she's been poisoned now again. And he starts to treat her for poison. He sends for a stomach pump. He gets asked for his stuff to be brought downstairs. But the strychnine takes effect very, very quickly. Jane Stanford is a spiritualist, never used the word death. Spiritualists mm -hmm. don't talk about that. It's like death. crossing... Yeah, it's just a crossing, passing over, those, that kind of language. And, but she says at the end, this is a terrible death to die. She knows she's been poisoned. Within 10 minutes after the doctor arrives, she's dead. And she will have an autopsy, a coroner's jury, and the coroner's jury that she was, rules that she was murdered by person or persons unknown. Mm. And yet, over time, that pretty simple determination. I mean, she'd been poisoned twice in a short period of time. She herself said she'd been poisoned. This set of people in Hawaii agreed. How did it come to be that that pretty simple story of murder becomes this kind of unresolved, hazy thing? 
David Starr Jordan is the short answer. David Starr Jordan confers with Mountford Wilson, Jane Stanford's attorney and the attorney for the estate, Charles Lathrop, her brother. Um, and he will come out and bring with him um, Jules Collenden, who's the person who'd covered up the first murder, and a police detective named Harry Reynolds, who's mostly, who's fairly inept, but is mostly known for bringing back suspects, especially suspects who pose no threat. He says he's coming to Hawaii not to solve the murder, not to quarrel with it, but simply as a motion of respect to um, bring Jane Stanford home. But what he, what he, ends, up, <clears throat> what he ends up doing is um, trying to subvert the investigation. He immediately starts planning stories in the newspapers about how inept the Hawaiian police were, um, how the coroner's jury had misread the evidence. He says, I'm a physician. And he was a physician, but he hadn't practiced in 20 years, and he said his own medical degree was worthless. But he will hire another physician who he will then have write a special report um, without ever having seen Jane Stanford's body, without ever having gone to the autopsy, that um, instead what he will do is have this report come out and said that all the people who had actually done the investigation and the other doctors were corrupt, they should pay more attention to what's happened um, with the report that that he has solicited. Yeah. And then he will then, be, as he leaves, he will say that they have decided that, in fact, there is no evidence she was poisoned. She had died of a heart attack, though they had examined the heart. There was no evidence of a heart attack. And that he says he was, um, that that he will go back to San Francisco and deliver this material to the police department. And he does. So what he's done is pretty much um, thwart everything that had been done by the investigation and return back to San Francisco to deliver. Collendon will deliver his report and that um, Jordan will then testify to the police in San Francisco, who he says will take over the investigation. We're talking with historian Richard White about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. Do hearing stories about greed, corruption, and ill motives of Gilded Age titans change the way you think about the institutions they founded? And do we want to think about philanthropy now? We'll be doing some of that after the break. And we'll also reveal who Richard White thinks murdered Jane Stanford. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Stay tuned to hear who killed Jane Stanford. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum, when you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with historian Richard White about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford, A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. 
Uh, one listener writes in to say, I was reading a bit of trivia about the Stanfords. They originally offered to donate to a large university on the East Coast. And then the president of the university saw the Stanford couple, thought they weren't that well-dressed, and thought they probably don't have money, but said he'd think about their donation. So, lucky for California, they took their money here. Is that a... Uh... The, the problem with that story is it's totally false. <laughs> That's just folklore. They knew full well who the Stanfords were. Stanford was a United States senator and one of the richest people in the United States. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, um, it's a good story, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it won't die. And no matter how many times people undermine it, it won't die. Um, <clears throat> so when we left this story, uh, Jane Stanford is dead. There are a variety of people who wanted her dead despite her protestations, including perhaps Bertha Berner, who'd been controlled by uh, Jane her whole uh, adult life. Uh, David Starr Jordan, perhaps, who'd been struggling with Jane Stanford over control of the university, perhaps the Lathrops, perhaps other servants like Ah Wing. Who did, what conclusion did you come to about who killed Jane Stanford? Um, I'm not going to tell you, Alexis. No! <laughs> the people are going to have to read the book. But what I will tell them is the thing that, that surprised me was how many people had a motive for killing Jane Stanford. When I started it out, I thought, well, what there's going to be is there's going to be somebody who I suspect, and I'm going to see if they did it. But then I begin to find, well, Ah Wing had a motive. Bertha Berner had a motive. David Starr Jordan had a motive because he knew that Jane Stanford was going to fire him from being president of the university as soon as she returned from Hawaii. She'd set the, she'd set the ball in motion. Her brother Charles Lathrop and other relatives had a motive for the inheritance. Um, as it turns out, Bertha Berner and her butler were embezzling from her, um, and so they had a motive for, co- for covering up the embezzlement. Elizabeth Richmond, who is an eccentric maid and was one of the people there at the first poisoning, had a motive because she thought that Jane Stanford um, might fire her and also that because she was apparently jealous of Bertha Berner, though that's unclear. So the more I looked, the more people I found who had a motive for Jane Stanford. So the, the investigation that I do is I can't just focus on one person. I go through mm-hmm. many people. Um, and in the end, I will tell you who I thought um, killed Jane Stanford, but that's going to involve reading the book or talking to somebody who did read the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have read the book, but I, I know, will respect and I'm not your wishes, you. <laughs> uh, not Richard gonna, yeah, White. And not, I know not you've read it, it, but I'm not going um, to make your job easier. <laughs> let's bring in a caller, uh, Dana, from Santa Rosa. Hi. Um, so I was just calling to ask, because you did talk about um, his racism, especially against Asian Americans. And there's been, over the last couple of years, as we all know, kind of a racial reckoning in this country and as well how a lot of the Ivy Leagues in this country have handled that uh, racial reckoning, uh, both well and I think very poorly in the number of cases. And I was just wondering how how is Stanford kind of viewing this, especially because, I mean, I'm 21. I was kind of a part of the UC system and racism against Asian Americans is in the UCs is fairly well-known and well-documented, especially in the Bay Area um, and in the Ivy Leagues you know, on the West Coast. So I was just wondering, how does that, does that play in? That's a um, good question. Yeah, kind thank of your you. Story? Yeah. Well, Stanford has tried to reckon with it by basically throwing David Starr Jordan under the bus. He becomes the one who will um, take the blame because he was a eugenicist. There's no, there's no doubt about it. 
But David Starr Jordan's eugenicism and his distrust of um, non-Anglo-Saxon Americans, as they called them at the time, is pretty universal. He doesn't like the French. He doesn't like Mexicans. He doesn't like Italians. Um, he does like, and this is where 20th century, early 20th century racism gets complicated, he does like the Japanese, who he makes um, honorary white people. So what you have, if you're really going to look at the racist background of Stanford, which is quite real, you're going to encounter a quite complicated racism. It's a racism which has similarities to our own, but it's not exactly the same thing. Stanford has recognized this, but essentially what they've done is decided the easiest way out of this is to... Um, denounce eugenics and to denounce David Starr Jordan, who, again, I'd say there's no reason not to, and to ignore all the others whose buildings named after them or Jane Stanford herself, who had racial beliefs that we would be um, very, very uncomfortable with. It's the early 20th century, and one of the things you're going to find in this, in this history is it would have been a lot easier for me to write it if I could have found a hero, um, but it was really hard to find heroes in this book. What would a real reckoning with Stanford's history look like for you as someone who's studied it so deeply as well as the, the region and the nation in which it was embedded? You know, the, the thing for me is um, I've really, after railroaded and through this book and other work I've done, believe in following the money. Um, and the Stanford, that's the one thing at Stanford University, they're never going to allow you to follow. Where you don't want to go is into the endowment. The endowment is secret. Who gives money to Stanford, what they expect in return for it, what Stanford promises to get the money, how money given to the endowment, as with Jane Stanford, who first was at one point was going to turn the whole university over to the Jesuits, <clears throat> and another time was turning it into a, a school that taught what she called soul germ theory. How does the money influence what's actually taught at Stanford? Mm -hmm. um, that's, to me, the really interesting question about private universities, and it's the one question that universities don't really want to talk about. Yeah. We've got a, uh, another caller with a question about the founding of Stanford. Uh, Stephen in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Good morning. I had, a, I had read somewhere that initially, before the, the, the funding of Stanford University, that, that the Stanfords wanted to fund something through the University of California. And that, that fell through because I guess they didn't, they weren't granted enough control over the finances. I don't know if, if there's any truth to that. Sure. There's not a lot of truth to it. Um, Leland Stanford was on the board of trustees and wasn't um, reappointed. And so one of the arguments is he founded Stanford University out of vengeance, but that's that's not true. It's very clear. He, fought, he founded it because of the death of his son, Leland Jr. Um, the other thing is that the person who did want to give the money to the University of California was Collis P. Huntington, who was afraid that Stanford University was going to drain money out of the Southern Pacific, which was in danger of going bankrupt at the time. And he said that the California had a perfectly good university at the University of California at Berkeley, and that if they wanted money, they should just give the money to Berkeley. So that's really more Huntington. But he did it mostly because he was, he was appalled by virtually everything the Stanfords did. We're talking with historian Richard White about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. Also talking about philanthropy in that era, as well as uh, our own. What questions do you have about Stanford's early years for historian Richard White? As you've heard, he can do some nice myth-busting for you. And what connections do you see between the actions of the Gilded Age titans and the wealthy of today? How do you think about the philanthropy 
of our current ultra-rich. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Richard, you know, one of the lessons of this book is just the, the way that this kind of wealth seems to just not just corrupt, but really change the change everything about the, the institutions and the people in its proximity. And, you know, you were at Stanford during a time in which tech wealth became so enormous. And I wonder, I mean, is this what kind of drove you to write some of these books as a, as a way of kind of working through these issues? I know you just want to do the history as well, but do you think it's kind of seeing the way that that wealth has come into Stanford in such a huge way over the last few decades. Um, is that one of the motivations to try and understand what that does? Yeah, it, it, it certainly shaped it. I mean, I I'd started railroaded before this book because I wondered about how people um, could make vast fortunes out of companies that didn't necessarily make a lot of money. And I, and I learned that. And then I also learned, as I began to look at the Stanford thing, one of the things that people noticed in um, the early 20th century, and it's people who both opposed the Stanfords and people who were university presidents elsewhere, um, they thought of this kind of donation of money as a way to whitewash the acquisition of the money. Um, that what you do is you make money in ways that are pretty shady and might actually get social disapproval, but you clean the whole thing up by, as Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard, said of the Stanfords, creating a monument to yourself. And early Stanford University was a monument to the Stanfords. Um, physically, that was true. The, the, the interesting thing is the earthquake is going to take a lot of the stuff down. The Memorial Arch was about the Stanfords bringing civilization to California. The original church, which looked very different than the one today, which came down in the earthquake, was going to be um, a memorialization of Jane Stanford's spiritual beliefs. The museum was going to be pretty much uh, a homage to their dead child. And the earthquake of 1906 destroyed the arch, never was reconstructed, destroyed most of the museum, which is very different today, and destroyed the parts of the um, church, which were the parts most devoted to the memory of the Stanfords. And so I began to think, well, is that how money works still? And that clearly is shaping how I begin to look at this. Let's bring in Ambriel in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. I was just wondering, did um, did Miss Stanford have any impact on the women's rights movement, or did she make any progress for females in that time or in after her? Very. I, I think there's a very interesting answer to this question, Richard yeah. White. Yeah, that. I mean, it's a very interesting answer, and the thing that's usually going to be commemorated about Jane Stanford is she did believe in women's suffrage, um, and so did her husband Leland. And she also did make Stanford originally a co-ed university. And then something happened after the death of her son. Jane Stanford goes into a kind of sexual panic in the late 1890s, which will continue to her death. She begins to see 
women students as threats to male students, that they're going to corrupt the university, they're going to corrupt the male students, they're going to distract them. That at one point she says something very re revealing. She said if her son could come back, um, she wouldn't want him to come back to life because he died before literally he'd reached puberty and that um, she wanted she didn't want him to lose that kind of purity when he came back. There was a, a way in which she began to believe that women were um, corrupting Stanford University and corrupting male students. She also turns towards Catholicism, particularly towards Catholicism as celibate clergy, and she at one point is going to give Stanford over to the Jesuits. Crothers has to talk her out of doing that. So there's a point here where she begins to distrust women, and one of the things Crothers has to stop her from doing is to um, ban women from Stanford University. And the way they do that is come through with a set of reforms which are quite draconian. Um, they wanted to, and she dies before they can be implemented, what they wanted to do is have monitors who would literally examine women's sexuality, try to banish any sexual attraction from campus, make it that women couldn't come into the university until they're in their 20s, they'd be older than the male undergraduates. So it'd be this, this incredible restriction of um, women's rights at Stanford as an attempt to avoid banishing women from Stanford entirely. So it's a very interesting story, not one that's usually told about Stanford. Let's bring in Leland from Berkeley. Welcome, Leland. I'm assuming for now this is not a seance, <laughs> and you're not calling Leland Jr. from beyond the grave. Um, no, no, no. Well, my go ahead. question is, yeah. it was my understanding that uh, Leland Stanford burned his personal effects or burned his personal documents a few times in his lifetime. And I'm just wondering about if that is true or if uh, any of Jane Stanford's documents, records, like, exist today. Um, Leland Stanford's, and here I have to use the passive voice, Leland Stanford's papers were destroyed. <laughs> I'm not sure who destroyed them. And it's a cautionary tale to everyone. Do not destroy your personal papers because everything you wrote to other people still exists and their opinion of you still exists. And the defense you could have mounted from your own papers won't be there. So Leland Stanford has taken a great deal of abuse, much of it's deserved, but you can't say it's wrong from Leland Stanford's papers because those are gone. Jane Stanford destroyed her papers, including her diary, except she took out some excerpts, mostly around the founding of Stanford University and her son, and kept those. But otherwise, what she retained is letters from famous people. Her letters have been purged, but not destroyed. So I could find material about, um, about Jane Stanford. But the destruction of papers here was um, pretty thorough, but not so thorough that the story can't be recreated. As I say, it's very, very hard to erase an entire trail of what happened. So we have a, a couple of questions. Arthur and Corte Madera and Julia uh, also tweets to us, what has Stanford's university's reaction to Richard's book been? When will the university acknowledge its co-founder's murder on its website? I doubt if Stanford University will ever react to my book. <laughs> I mean, I, I've taught in Utah, and I've seen things about that are critical of the Mormon Church, for example, and Mormon Church just doesn't react. Um, Stanford University in that way. I would be astonished if Stanford University says anything about this. Stanford University, for me, the most revealing thing is, is when they came to examine the legacy of David Starr Jordan, they appointed a committee, and the committee consisted entirely, I think, of people from the law school. <laughs> 
They did not appoint. <laughs> they did not appoint. Richard White wasn't on there. <laughs> they did not appoint any historians. They consulted with historians, but historians were not in control of that of that committee. Uh, you know, I think that this will. As I say, I will be astonished if Stanford University reacts to this book at all. So interesting. Um, There is uh, another historical question. Um, A listener writes, will Professor White comment on the recent revelations about a Jewish quota in undergrad admissions and that the university has always denied it? I think referring to some uh, revelations from Wallace Sterling's archives, I believe. Yeah, if if there's a Jewish quota, it comes in later, and I'm I'm pretty sure because after World War II, the Jewish quotas, or even before World War II, Jewish quotas in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s were were prevalent. I'd be very surprised if Stanford didn't right, have a quota limiting Jewish people. Limiting Jewish people. Yeah, I'm sorry, clarify. It's a, a limit on Jewish enrollment. Um, that part, there are people going through the admissions records now. I mean, there there actually is a study going forward. I was when the person consulted me on it. I was astonished. They let you see the admissions records. Um, and there is apparently signs, but not, you know, not really clear signs that there was a quota um, on the number of Jewish students who would be admitted. What there clearly is a quota on is women students. That was the thing that they wanted to make sure. They did not want too many women at Stanford. Honoring Jane Stanford's legacy. What can you say? Um, Jay writes, uh, it seems to me that Stanford should be paying reparations to those that it's harmed, continues to harm with its legacy of greed, dishonor, and racism. If it was a public university, the Stanford name certainly would have been crossed out by now. What is the university doing to right its wrongs? And that one question there, should they rename the school? Well, <clears throat> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually getting tired of renaming um, because, in fact, what it does is it, it, the two things become disconnected. We aren't going to change anything we do, but what we're going to do is change the name and go on doing whatever we've done before. And the thing is, it's really hard to change Stanford's names. It's named after a dead 14-year-old, a 15-year-old. I mean, Leland Stanford Jr. was just a child. That's who the university's named after. Whatever he did, it was the sins of his parents, not Leland Stanford Jr. So changing the name of Stanford University would be, to me, pretty pointless. It's, that's not who it's named after. And I, I would hold universities to much higher standards than simply saying they should apologize for things and um, should change the names. Universities should actively do good. And Stanford would answer this by claiming, but we are. And my answer would be, how do I know? I can't AC. <laughs> We've been talking with historian Richard White about his new book, Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been my pleasure, Alexis. Great book. You Thanks. should buy it if you're at all <laughs> interested in this history. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. 
I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.